The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Provoke Podcast. I'm Maya Pavinska-Sims, the EMEA editor of Provoke, and I'm here in London or thereabouts with uh, two guests today who are going to talk to me about environmental, social and corporate governments or ESG and how business and indeed capitalism are being redefined and reinvented. Um, First up, we've got Matt Peacock, a sustainable business expert, former group director of corporate affairs at Vodafone, now partner at PR agency Blurred. Uh, Hello, Matt. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Um, And we also unusually um, have a lawyer in the house. We've got Kate Higgins, legal director and corporate governance lead at law firm Mishkondorea. Welcome, Kate. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Pleased to be here today on the podcast. Um, How's lockdown been for you both? You surviving? Um, Yeah. Yes, it's it's fine. I mean, it's surreal. It's still surreal, even though obviously lockdown is being lifted. Um, but yeah, it's okay. I mean, for, for me, because I don't live in London, but work in London, uh, being spared four hours of commuting on the world's worst railway known as Southwestern Rail, apologies to anyone who does their comms, uh, <laughs> has uh, liberated me. Um, so that's been good, but it's been pretty weird, but it's okay. Yeah, well, yes, absolutely. I've heard that a lot, that the, 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 uh, the abandonment of the commute has been a very welcome thing for, for many people who are trekking into town normally. Kate, what about you? Are you all okay over there? Yeah, we're absolutely fine. Um, very uh, similar to Matt in a way in that I am delighted not to have to commute into central London on overcrowded tra- trains. Um, I'm at home with my husband and two teenage children who um, are old enough to be able to respond well to homeschooling, thank goodness. So I'm much luck- luckier than many with young parents. Yeah, same here. Um, yeah. It's a, I uh, can't imagine what it's like having little ones running around and trying to do this as well. Yeah, but um, it's been great in terms of the amount of interest we've had in um, uh, governance and ESG, actually. Um, so we've been very, very busy with that. Okay, yeah, like, actually, likewise. <laughs> likewise, same here. Same point. It has focused people's thoughts rather, hasn't yeah, it? it has, period. big time. Um, now, we're here today on the, part of that, it's lovely to have you both, on the back of a, a private webinar you guys pulled together a few weeks ago, along with investment management firm BlackRock where you looked at various aspects of ESG and purpose within businesses. Um, First of all, Matt, can you give us a bit of context and just outline for us why ESG is such a strong business imperative now? Yeah, sure. Well, I think, you know, two reasons behind this. I mean, first of all, the climate crisis. Mm. Um, and secondly, that there's a crisis in capitalism underway. So just, just briefly to sort of expand on both of those. So the, from a climate risk perspective, you know, let's be clear about what we're facing as a species. If global temperature rises beyond uh, two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, which is the kind of the, the bench, one of the key benchmarks that the world is trying to avoid, then more than 3 billion people on Earth will experience effectively unendurable extreme heat every five years. So large parts of the planet will be very, very difficult to live in for 3 billion people. And and you fast forward to 2040, so just 20 years down the road, which isn't actually that long in terms of long-range business planning. Uh, Much of Africa, all of the United States, all of India, much of southern China and many other places will face enormous water constraints. I mean, essentially, in those countries and many others, there will not be enough water 
for most people to to meet their basic daily needs just 20 years from now mm. in a two degrees celsius world and every year that passes every year that gets closer to that kind of frankly unendurable future for humanity those risks are becoming clear today and so what that means is that the climate crisis has become in essence a material risk to enterprise value for many businesses across all industries and there's tremendous investor focus on corporate risk exposure to you know for example severe weather events uh, drought social disruption caused by climate change as well mm. and that's really focusing minds so that's that's one part of the e and then another part of the e which is very relevant for for some industries is the ecological risk particularly around plastic and the marine impact of plastic put that together and the e of esg is now uh, an absolutely critical concern for investors and as a result it's a major focus for companies then the second factor on top of all of that is that there is a crisis in capitalism in the developed world and especially in the us and in europe just to give you one illustration of of how that plays out over the last 40 years, in real terms, earnings for most households have essentially flatlined or they've declined, actually, mm. for the large majority of households. And there's been a, a, a dramatic increase in disparity in wealth between the wealthiest 1% or 2% of people on the planet and the rest of society. Now, in 1965, the average U.S. chief executive earned around 20 times the pay of the average U.S. employee. You fast forward to 2018, and that ratio is now around 270 times. Good. So in 1965, a US CEO of some of the biggest companies in the world, who's still around today, on average earned $900,000 a year, and that's in 2018 US dollars terms. And now that CEO earns on average $17 million a year. Okay, the average yeah. US employee earned forty thousand dollars in '65, and uh, now earns around fifty thousand dollars. So the point is that large parts of society in the wealthiest countries on earth no longer believe in capitalism, especially globalized capitalism. They believe it's failed them, uh, and that's why, in an opinion poll last year, um, around a third of US eighteen to twenty-four year olds said they believed socialism was a better way to run the world, and half of them said they did not believe in capitalism. All of which, by the way, was before COVID. So the S of ESG is essentially the corporate defense against that kind of delusion, this disillusion. It's an attempt to, as it were, repair the bond between company and society. And that's that's the other factor that's driving this. All of which, by the way, again, predates COVID and predates Black Lives Matter. Um so what what are the bad this all seems you know this is uh this is common sense then isn't it for businesses to be getting on on board with this it's the it, it's the future of uh of how businesses and corporations are going to have to run given that yeah. given these huge pressures but it seems like there are several barriers to actually doing this right getting a handle on esg developing effective programs within organizations which i know you've spoke about before what what, what are they well, it's really hard to do this, okay? Um, to do it right, to become an ESG leader, for a start, it needs the business to be honest with itself. You have to have very frank, sometimes quite heated conversations internally about 
risk and the risk that you need to think about the risks that you need to think about are not so much risks to the enterprise which is historically how companies tend to think about risk what are the bad things that could happen to us over the short term that could prevent us from achieving our guidance or hitting our targets and instead the company has to think about the risks that it causes to others mm. Over the, and over a much longer time period, over a five to 10 year period, typically. So what are the bad things that we could inadvertently or even deliberately do to the communities around us that we could inflict upon the ecological environment around us? Uh, and that requires the company to, as it were, rewire its brain in terms of risk management to think about its role in society and in the world very very differently and that's hard i mean it's you know i i speak you know i have the scars and the bruises to prove it i mean when you're in a business trying to get the business to think differently to that extent it's not an easy process so that's kind of problem number one problem number two is that esg isn't owned by any one function you know, companies like to delegate. They like to have ownership and accountability within a defined space. And ESG doesn't work like that. ESG is a collaboration, not a delegation. It is truly cross-functional. You know, sustainability own part of the E, legal own part of the S around human rights risk, typically. HR own the other part of the S, which is the internal stakeholders, your workforce. Um, uh, and corporate affairs sort of, as it were, aggregate all of this. And corporate affairs and communications are the storytellers. So their, their role is to communicate these things. But there's no one owner of it. And then, by the way, over and above all of this, increasingly the CFO, the finance director, is hugely concerned about ESG and the investment community, as is the investor relations director. So, you know, they're impacted, as it were, in their functions by poor ESG performance, but they don't actually own any of the data either. So you can sort of get to this position where it re it's really, really important. It's really, really difficult. And there is no one clearly defined owner of it beneath the board because ultimately the, the the chair the chair of the board owns all these risks or should do um, and therefore you know companies kind of struggle to as it were almost begin the journey mm. to transform themselves into being an ESG leader because it's so difficult so when you when you go in and you're advising companies on this what's what's the ideal scenario what who should own it in your view well the ideal scenario is I mean the pure ideal scenario is that it should be owned by the CFO Mm. Because ultimately, the CFO um, is is responsible for the allocation of the capital of the business, and um, much of the uh, many of the risks that are ESG risks, uh, to, sorry, mitigating those risks involves difficult decisions about capital allocation, particularly around climate-related risk. Um, so to have the individual that is uh, accountable to the board for the administration of capital, in effect. Um, as the owner of um, ESG strategy is the absolute ideal. And, and increasingly, actually, uh, blurred, we do find that. We find that the conversations, as much as anything, begin in, in the IR space, in the investor relations space, or with, um, in the finance space, as they do in other parts of the business, which is a positive sign. Um, yeah, that's really interesting that that's kind of just been elevated, hasn't it, really? Um, yeah. what, what's the link then? And we talk a lot about purpose, as you know, in Provoke and agencies, PR agencies and comms agencies talk a lot about purpose and helping clients ex express and live their, their purpose and tell stories around it. What's the link between ESG and expressing your corporate purpose? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I mean, at Blurred, for us, we think of this as ESGP. 
Yeah. So okay. there are. What's in the essence, P? Yeah. Well, the P is the purpose. <laughs> right? the purpose? So, so yeah. So there, there are. Think of it this way: there are four elements to being a good company. So there's environmental risk, there's social risk, there's governance risk, all of which combined are ESG, and all of which are about reducing the potential for the company to cause harm. And then there's the P, which is purpose, which is all about maximizing the potential for the company to do good through its core business. Mm. And companies have to go through the process of becoming an ESG leader in order to then articulate a clear and credible purpose. So if, what we find um, from, from our work is that if the conversation begins with purpose alone, so you purely have a conversation about what's our purpose, how do we articulate our purpose, then the end destination of that conversation is likely to be a brand purpose only. And the danger right. with brand purpose is that it's basically purpose light. Yeah, it's, mm. it's little more than kind of rainbow washing. It's feel good greenwash fluff. And these days, you know, well, actually, frankly, ever, but particularly these days, that just doesn't wash. It will be called out in a heartbeat. The world will spot in, in, if you're being inauthentic to that extent. So in order to prove that you do good, which is what purpose is, mm. you must first prove that you do no harm, which is what ESG is. And that's why, as I say, for us at Blurred, we talk about ESGP as a continuum with each aspect of ESG and each aspect of purpose essentially interdependent. That's probably the clearest um, explanation I've ever heard of why purpose matters. <laughs> so thank, thank you very much for that. Let's move beyond the feel-good fluff, absolutely. And um, Kate, coming to you, what's the legal backdrop to all of this? What are companies required to do now and how is that evolving in terms of corporate governance? Um, well, I think it's it's multifaceted. Um, we have the strict and the, the hard legal position where you have regulations which um, provide in, in sometimes criminal offences, but um, alternatively civil offences for companies which underline things like health and safety on the S side or which are specific to the E. But on the governance side, um, we have codes of, of best practice. And they started out very much at a quoted company level, but have also fed down um, increasingly in recent years so that there are now best practice codes for private companies as well. Although strictly, um, companies only have to comply or explain against the private company code if they are very large. So you're talking about a company with over 2,000 employees. Right. We are starting to see an uptake um, in companies using that as a standard now, um, whether they are strictly required to comply or explain against it or not. Um, and then, of course, you have directors' duties. Now, directors owe their duties to the company. Um, so they're not um, on the whole where there's no hard regulation, those hard regulation I was referring to earlier, that um, they're not liable to the world at large. Um, but they do owe duties to the company which require them to consider the E and the S, their employees, their customers, their suppliers, um, society at large. And I was interested to hear earlier Matt referring to talking about the bond between company and society. Um, I've heard it also expressed in, in different ways because there's a balance of power going on and there's a real shift starting to happen. Mm. 
I've mentioned that directors owe duties to the company and they're the ones who have these obligations to look after um, wider society. But they do so in a subsidiary manner to making a profit at the moment in the way that the law is written. Right. And the primary obligation is to return profit to the shareholder and the shareholder is, is elevated to the principal stakeholder. Of course, this, the shareholder is the one that has initially, um, the shareholders are the ones that are looking for the long term or short term, depending on their views, returns. Yeah. And they get limited liability status. So they're only liable for that amount that they put in if everything goes wrong in the company tanks. And that's what you hear of increasingly being called the bargain with society. So it's picking up that on that idea that Matt's referred to as the bond between the company and the society. But actually looking at it again now, the language is moving towards the bargain with society. You're not liable as a shareholder for what the company does. And under company law, historically, the shareholders have been able to, they, they they take certain decisions, they have certain decisions um, reserved to them, but they've been always allowed to vote in their own personal interests. But now the, the language has moved on, particularly at quoted company level, and you're seeing the shareholders being increasingly called upon to invest responsibly and to look to the longer term and not to think about share, the short term. So the, we're now looking at the language of responsible investing. And um, I think that's the big change that we have seen in recent years. And what's the, I mean, Matt talked a little bit about risk earlier. What's, what are the risks of getting this wrong or not playing by the rules from a, from a legal perspective? Yeah, I mean, again, I like the phrase that he's used, crisis in capitalism. I think, um, I think sometimes people tend to look at the hard law um, and uh, certainly we've experienced clients who do this. They say, tell me, do I have to? Tell me, do I have to report? And the way that you turn it around and then onto them and, and say is, look, you need the loyalty of your customers. You need the loyalty of your employees. You need your to get investment to expand or survive. You may need lending and you're not going to get those things unless you can convince us that you are here to, to serve a purpose in society and that's where and that is why the corporate governance codes put purpose in the very first principle so we've got corporate governance codes as i mentioned for listed companies for m companies and for large private companies and each and every one of them puts the board and purpose at the top and it places the board um, in the in that first principle and it places purpose right within that that the board is responsible for setting the company's purpose and for then making sure that strategy and relationships with stakeholders are aligned with that mm, that's and a huge purpose isn't it it is and purpose for me is the it's described in the codes um as the why the company exists mm. so i mean just to give you an example because i think it's always helpful to illustrate mm. um, and it's very pertinent in terms of the current crisis i've heard um the founder of leon talking about um their purpose which um, I believe is to eat well, live well. I hope um, I'm not doing them any disservice. And we know that Leon is a company that um, provides 
food on a, on a takeaway basis. But I've heard them talking about the fact that that purpose is so embedded in their culture has allowed them very quickly to pivot what they have done um, in their in the current crisis because it becomes instinctive when you have a strong purpose and you can flex what you do you can find out different ways so they've been supplying nhs workers with meals um, they've launched they've got together in partnership with some others and they have um, set up a platform um, with with partners with other businesses in order to supply food um, in a different way and they've done that incredibly quickly um, under lockdown uh, and that's because they have a clear purpose yeah. and it's at board level so again picking up what um, Matt was talking about who owns ESG earlier it, it really should be the board and the board should there's so many facets to ESG the board should be looking at what are the priorities that we need to deal with given we what we know our purposes and then allocating responsibility across the many people that Matt listed so, so Matt, that works. sorry Kate what um, Matt what's the role of communications in all, in all of this is this primarily about engaging all of those stakeholders and what are the opportunities here in terms from a reputational point of view um, so corporate affairs or communications is critical in all of this. Um, uh, as I said earlier, I mean, it, it, both as an aggregator function, so having an overview of all the risks and asking the difficult questions internally about whether the company is being honest with itself about um, its understanding of the risks and how it's mitigating the risks. Mm. But but as critically in its role as um, the, the owner of narrative and the owner of external stakeholder relationships. Because um, one of the important points about ESG is that it's not enough to be, um, to, as it were, have the right policies and the right procedures and uh, the right risk mitigation in place. You have to also be super transparent about all that and make it clear publicly that you're doing all of those things or that you're not doing things you should not be doing. So there's, there's a phrase in the human rights world, which is actually where most of my work lies, uh, which is know and show. Um, uh, and know as in you have to know what your risks are and you have to mitigate those risks and show as in you have to show to the world that you're doing that. So, so communication is, is absolutely essential in all of this. Um, I mean, the worst thing uh, is to be, as it were, a shy ESG leader. Right. Yeah, where you're doing absolutely what you should be doing and you're absolutely not doing what you should not be doing. Um, but you sort of don't bother to tell the world about it or you tuck it away in a sort of, you know, a sort of 10, uh, 10 point type, uh, very dull annual report once a year. Um, because actually proving that you are a good and responsible company uh, means talking to people. It means engaging with people. It means showing that you are those things. Um, and that is as important as being good in the first place. Um, we spoke earlier about climate change. That was kind of the primary driver of, of all of this stuff. But the world has changed incredibly quickly over the space of a few weeks this year. What's the effect of COVID-19 on, on all of the factors we've talked about? Um, so, I mean, some of the institutional investors that uh, we've spoken to have uh, started talking about how 
it, it's no longer ESG, it's, it's almost becoming SEG, mm. and that the social factors are at the top. And, and partly that's a response to what's happened recently um, uh, as a result of the Black Lives Matter, uh, Matter c- campaigns. Partly it's also a sense that um, even before COVID, the kind of rising inequality and frustrations uh, within the developed world about capitalism were sort of coming to the fore. Um, and that they are at the very least on a par with concern about climate risk and ecological risk. Mm. Um, so it's certainly front of mind in terms of the conversation. Um, how that translates into action is actually, to be honest, harder to see. So climate risk, the, 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 the main bit of the E, now is actually, it's pretty clear. The direction of travel is pretty clear for all companies. Mm. Climate risk is material risk to the, to the long-term balance sheet. The enterprise is taken incredibly seriously by investors. All companies are responding to it. There is no debate about it in that sense. Um, y- you, you will be an outlier as a business if you uh, do not take account of climate risk and are not seen to work towards a zero carbon uh, year goal and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, in terms of the workforce, so the internal stakeholder bit of the S of ESG, which is a large part of the, the dynamic around COVID and indeed around the you know, grotesque inequality experienced by African-Americans and by black and minority ethnic people pretty much everywhere, uh, that's actually much harder. There isn't yet that I can see um, outside of gender, which has been an area of focus for business for, for uh, most, most of the last uh, 10 years, um, particularly in terms of uh, board composition. So the Davis rules on one third of board directors being uh, female as an example of that. Outside agenda, there hasn't really been a uh, concerted drive towards a structured response by companies to address the inequalities within the workforce that COVID has exposed and that indeed Black Lives Matter has exposed. Um, uh, what happens over the next two years in terms of frameworks emerging where companies, for example, uh, begin to deal with um, uh, imbalances in ethnicity in the same way that they've focused on imbalances in gender. Um, uh, that, what happens over the next two years will be critical. Um, I don't yet see a, a clear evidence of an emerging framework that everyone is going to sign up to. I hope one will come soon because it's, it's long overdue. Um, was no, me chipping in there? Yes, uh, no, please, um, Kate. On carry on. Yeah. Um, so it's. it's I, I kind of. I, I agree with what Matt said here. There's two things, you know, that I'd like to add to that. One is that there is a as an ethnicity pay gap reporting um, proposal, which is just sitting there mm. in the queue of legislation, um, waiting um, for attention. And I think it'd be interesting to see whether that progresses. But the other thing, obviously, is that we had the Parker review um, and the targets there that, that were set following that were to have at least one director of colour on boards of the FTSE 100 um, and the FTSE by next year. Um, so that's coming ever closer and I don't think we're anywhere um, in terms of reaching those targets and um, and then for the 350 by 2024. So I think I, it'd be interesting to see now whether the um, whether the ISS and other bod- similar bodies who um, set the voting targets, I mean c- quoted companies will, will be um, given various colours in terms of 
um, advisory as to, to whether there'll be votes against them in terms of um, their corporate governance reporting that, and um, votes at their AGMs. And um, so the nomination committees, I think, will be really looking at this and really thinking about um, what they should be doing in response to this. And certainly in our own organisation, and I know a number of clients have mentioned that they are looking much, much more closely now at these types of issues. Um, it sounds like it's the, all of this stuff is, despite... Uh, other huge themes uh, around in, in the world and society that ESG and defining purpose can't be put to one side while businesses just kind of survive. It's kind of got to be more front and centre than ever. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say the, the, the S, uh, this is a crude generalisation perhaps, but the S is, feels about 10 years behind the E. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so with the E, there are now uh, very, very clearly defined frameworks very clear actionable items and actionable goals that all companies can and must implement. And if they don't, they pay a serious price in terms of investor sentiment. Um, it's, we're not there yet on the bits of the S that really, really great with wider society. Mm. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the Parker Review is a good example of it. The Parker Review um, absolutely is laudable, but it doesn't feel to me to be terribly actionable for many businesses. There are, there are things that they absolutely should do, but in terms of how they put it into effect, it's much less clear. Yeah, um, this, is, this is often the case though, isn't it? With policy translating to action within the business context is incredibly challenging and can't be done overnight. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lag effect. And, and you know, the reality is that when you've got significant numbers of people in the richest countries in the world feeling seriously aggrieved at, at the way globalised capitalism works, and with very, very good reason, just look at the numbers, you know, business hasn't got the luxury of kind of a, te a 10 year plus leisurely process to get to a, a, an end state where there is a greater sense of equality and engagement with wider society you know something has to happen quickly um, but but as of yet it's not entirely clear what that something would look like um, Kate, as you've said, shareholders are still, for, for the majority of businesses, the majority of time, the, the primary concern. At what point do you think we'll see people, profit and planet on an equal legal footing? And, and what are some good practical ways companies can work towards this? Um, I, think, I think the answer is not to wait. I don't think um, companies can wait for regulation to change. Right. Um, there, are, there, there have been various private members' bills and there are a number of initiatives out there. For example, you had the British Academy report on the future of the corporation lobbying for change. Um, you've had various other things. Um, but I, I think that the, the government is busy just sort of dealing with other stuff right now. We've got Brexit looming, um, another risk on the horizon. Oh, yeah, we forgot about that. <laughs> um, oh, my goodness. We thought so we I forgot think... about Brexit, guys. That's, yeah, that's no. quite a <laughs> So, I mean, I think the statute that, you know, the government is going to have its hands full in terms of um, legislation. So, uh, but, but I think we've, you know, we've outlined the imperatives the crisis in capitalism we uh, and, and i think companies are just at that point where they just can't you know their competitors are doing it um that they're not going to survive in the longer term unless they address these issues um so you know going back to black Lives matters again um 
you know you need to be having diversity training you need and um you you need to be looking at your pipeline um and making sure that the talented people from all different backgrounds whether it be um backgrounds of color whether it be gender whether it whether it be social mobility that those issues are being addressed and you need to start with the people you recruit at um, on the ground the people that you bring up through your apprenticeship apprenticeship sorry schemes um, the whole work so our tried and tested methods of of reacting um, and of course we've seen a huge um, uptake with the changes to the corporate governance code in getting representation of workers on boards as well um, and setting up mechanism for stakeholder engagement there as well so that's another big, that's been another big thing as regards because I think you know in your question one of the things what, what could a business do to put stakeholder values on a level pegging um, we at Mishcon act for companies who are applying to become B Corps mm. um, and a B Corp um, is a way of um, writing into your constitution to put those um, three things it's called the triple bottom line yeah um so you put not only shareholder returning profits to shareholder but also so, uh, doing good in society and the environment into your articles which binds the directors um to deliver on those things and then you undertake whether or not you're a quoted company and bound to do governance reporting to report annually um on um how you're doing against some hard um, goals some hard targets that you've written in mm. um, and that is something that companies can do voluntarily you can apply to become a b corp you go through a pretty rigorous um process of accreditation assessment um, assessment in order to get accreditation looking at how your governance regime works how um, you fare on the social side with your employees and the impact that you have more generally on society and also looking at your um, environmental and so we work with companies both to amend their articles and um, to write those um, the ESG concepts into them um, and also um, partnering with others within the B Corps movement to ensure that they can go through that process of due diligence um, to get themselves in a place where they can get B Corps accredited and then you get um, a badge of accreditation which um, is, a, is a sales point for you as well. Yeah well we've seen it actually within the comms industry we've got the uh, Freud's Milk and Honey, Don't Cry Wolf, there's various agencies that have um, you know really uh, gone through this of, of several um, sizes and I think it's harder for the big harder for the big organizations than the smaller yeah. organizations obviously but yeah that's something that's been that we're, we're seeing increasingly that agencies who want to work with purpose-led companies are are reflecting on you know who who they are themselves and what purpose that they are able to express so they are um you know a better match for those clients as it were um just right and so at mishcom we've also um we're in the process of becoming a b corp our art our um lp oh, wow. has already been amended um and um and, you know other organizations well you know like the guardian i think has become a b corp as well yeah and uh, same at blurred by the way 
we're, we're becoming a B Corp too. Great. I, I wouldn't have expected anything less than that from you lot, frankly. Uh, no, it, well, well it's, actually, there's a broader point. I mean, you know, it's going to become a sort of basic ticket for entry yeah. for any, any advisory business that is serious about ESG and purpose, I think. Um, uh, and secondly, more broadly, you know, uh, people, you know, the kind of the conversations I have are, uh, the long-term future of business. What is it? What does a good business look like in the future? And my sort of simple answer is a B Corp. Mm. I mean, if, 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 if all business was, a was like a B Corp, uh, we, we almost wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just wanted to wrap up with one final thing, looking ahead with this, you know, increased focus on ESG for businesses of all sizes globally. Are you, are you hopeful for how business is going to evolve? Well, I, I, I'm, I am. I'm an optimist. And I'm an optimist because um, I, I believe in capitalism, bizarrely, despite everything I've said. Uh, um, and I believe in capitalism because capitalism is endlessly adaptive. That's why capitalism has actually outlasted all other forms of organizing society, certainly in, um, in Europe, the US and other places. Um, capitalism is changing. Um, because it's going to have to change and it can change because it has changed in the past so you know my view is that that in a sense ESG and purpose is capitalism saving itself from itself and it will get there that's a really good way of putting it what about you Kate you hopeful yeah I'm also an optimist by nature um, and certainly we have our own um, purpose business at Mishcon and we're seeing huge um, interest and uptake from clients, whether they be companies um, and all, all different sizes or whether they be families, um, wealthy families as well um, in, in, in their family businesses. Um, amazing. That was really interesting. Thank you both for diving into you know, the fine detail of that from a kind of investor and legal point of view, as well as the, the comms um, uh, stuff. I really appreciate it. I think it's always, uh, we, we, we talk a lot, we use a lot of language in the comms industry. We don't always dive behind. So uh, that's been really interesting, fascinating chat. And um, thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.